With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Megan Ralston from the Drug Policy Alliance and David Burns, who is the author of Feeling Good. And uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. It's the Hams Harm Reduction Network. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting alcohol altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Megan Ralston, who is the Harm Reduction Coordinator for Southern California for the Drug Policy Alliance. And... Megan, welcome to our show. Hi, Kenneth. Thanks. So tell us, what is the Drug Policy Alliance and what do you do? So the Drug Policy Alliance is essentially the the nation's leading organization working to fight the drug war. Uh, We have offices across the country in places like New York, Washington, D.C., California, Colorado, New Mexico, New Jersey. Essentially what we do is... We work to fundamentally reduce the role of criminalization in drug policy at both the state level and the federal level. And we do that by really working toward a society where the use and uh, regulation of drugs is grounded in science and health and human rights. Okay. uh, Is there... uh is there evidence that uh, decriminalization of drugs would uh, reduce drug use or uh, eliminate drug-related problems? Sure. And, in fact, you know, really the thing that sets Drug Policy Alliance apart from other organizations is everything we do is really foundationally based on evidence and science and research. Everything that we advocate for and work toward comes from a really strong research base. So in order to have the position that that decriminalization will have positive effects in the U.S., it's really based on research that already exists in the world. And a great place to start that kind of conversation is to look at Portugal, which has decriminalized all drugs and has had really tremendous outcomes. What are some of the outcomes they had from the decriminalization? Uh, Actually, a number of really interesting things have happened in Portugal. Uh, Like people in the U.S. fear now, people in Portugal feared, well, if we decriminalize drugs, won't that just increase drug use? Won't more people do more drugs and won't all of the problems get worse? And in fact, just the opposite happened. Overdose deaths went down. Uh, The use of illicit drugs problematically, like addiction use of drugs went down. Uh, People going into drug treatment increased significantly. Uh, Crimes associated with obtaining drugs decreased. Just a plethora of really great outcomes were associated with the decriminalization of drugs in Portugal. But of course, I want to mention that it's not simply just decriminalizing drugs that has a positive effect. It's really beefing up access to treatment that is a really intrinsically important part of any kind of decriminalization model. You have to make treatment much more widely available to a larger number of people if you're going to be suggesting that instead of sending people to jail for drugs, now we're going to be encouraging them to seek treatment. What are some of the options for decriminalization? Would you just have, uh, you know, heroin available next to the M&Ms in the drugstore? Or what? <laughs> right. it's, it's funny, of course, because that's what people will automatically 
uh, think of with, when they hear about this policy before they've had a chance to learn much about it. But in fact, decriminalization is completely separate from what you're referring to right now, which is sort of more of a legalization model. And those two terms get confused a lot and misused a lot. So if I can, let me just take a second to explain the difference between decriminalizing something and legalizing something. When we decriminalize something, what we do is take away the criminal penalties associated with it. And that's it. That's all we're doing. So if we say that we wanted to decriminalize marijuana, for example, that might mean that you can no longer be arrested for merely possessing marijuana, and you certainly wouldn't go to jail for merely possessing marijuana or using marijuana. That doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be able to buy it at a 7-Eleven. It simply means that the criminal penalties associated with it are gone. Okay. Uh, does the Drug Policy Alliance, are they only interested in decriminalization or are they interested in legalization or do they explore many different options? Well, uh, so that's an interesting question. So let's start first with marijuana. So absolutely, Drug Policy Alliance supports the legalization of marijuana. And what that means is that we support uh, a way to control and regulate access to marijuana. So legalization doesn't simply mean uh, a free-for-all with no one paying taxes and no one paying attention, because we already have that right now, of course. That's the black market that exists. Uh, we have that, and clearly that's not working. So we don't support that free-for-all uh, that tends to happen when you have something prohibited like marijuana. So we support the legalization of marijuana, which means we want to see rules and regulation and tighter control associated with the availability of marijuana in the United States. We do not, however go so far as to say that we support the legalization of all other drugs. We do support the decriminalization of all drugs. We essentially believe that no one should be put behind bars simply for possessing or using a substance absent harm to others. So if you're not committing a crime, if you're not being violent, if you're inflicting no damage into the world that you live in, we don't believe that you should be behind bars merely for possessing or using a drug, for example, like ecstasy. So you think marijuana should be treated like alcohol and have age limits and taxation, maybe be sold in liquor stores? Uh, I think that the way that it would become available to people is really up to the different states or the different uh, communities to make those kinds of decisions for themselves. Uh, but we certainly do advocate that communities should be able to make their own decisions. It should be made available in a tightly controlled kind of way because just like everyone else, we don't want young people having unfettered access to drugs. They already have that now because of prohibition and the black markets that that creates. And we know that marijuana is so widely consumed, it's significantly less harmful in terms of societal impacts than alcohol, which is widely supported by a huge breadth and depth of research. So what we're suggesting is that we know that marijuana is here, we know it's widely available, many people use it and have used it for decades, and now it's time to just get a little bit more serious and thoughtful about how we allow it to be available to folks. And while we're at it, let's tax access to it so we can generate much-needed revenue for the states that want to tax and regulate it. I've heard that in schools for uh, students, underage students like high schools, even junior high, even grade schools, that it's much easier to get the illegal drugs than it is to get a hold of alcohol. Have you heard that? Right. You know, you hear that time and time again. And I think most of that has to do with the fact that there are such very strict regulations on alcohol. Uh, no 15-year-old would dream of uh, asking uh, someone who sells marijuana to please sell them a bottle 
a vodka. People just don't really do it because alcohol is available. If you're an adult, there's no big profit incentive there. Uh, but because the substance remains illegal, like marijuana, those are the products that you tend to seek out. So it's easier for younger people, and in fact, frankly, you know, up until age 21, uh, it's easier for people to get illegal drugs than it is to get legal drugs because of the profit incentive that's involved. Um, it seems very perverse, but it's absolutely true that when you have something that's legal and made available to adults, interest in it among youth decreases. Of course, youth continue to abuse alcohol and use alcohol in inappropriate ways. We all know that that's true. Um, but they can continue, of course, to use other illicit drugs. So we have to get a little bit smarter about how we're teaching young people uh, to be safe and aware of the dangers of drugs. And we also have to be smarter about controlling their access to it. Now, I've heard that places like Switzerland have uh, heroin maintenance programs where people can who don't succeed with uh, methadone maintenance can get prescription heroin. Does that sound like an option that would be good for the United States? You know, that's absolutely an interesting point and completely true. Many people probably aren't even aware of this, but in other parts of the world, like Switzerland, they have had a program there that they call heroin-assisted treatment for people who are physically and psychologically dependent on heroin who have tried a number of times a variety of treatment programs like methadone, like abstinence, a variety of different things. And for whatever reason, they're uh, treatment resistant or treatment uh, fails them over and over again. So people in Switzerland said, well, instead of these folks continuing to commit crime in order to get money, to purchase their heroin, and all of the problems that are associated with that, why don't we instead treat their drug addiction as a manageable chronic problem that's addressed by a physician, and let's give them access to the drug that they use, that is a pharmaceutical-grade drug with no impurities, no toxins in it, and give this to them uh, on scheduled, allocated times, and, and incorporate that into a much larger framework of holistically treating that person, helping them to get their life back. So that now that they're not out having to buy drugs and go to the black market and commit crimes, when all of that is taken away out of their life, and now they know they can reliably get access to the drug upon which they are dependent, gives them a lot more time to pursue their education again or get a job or attempt to get custody of their children and basically become productive members of society again. The results in Switzerland have been absolutely stunning. And what we see is a significant drop in property-related crime associated with obtaining drugs. We see significant improvements in people getting jobs and contributing and paying taxes Again, the people who are a part of that program, the patients themselves, report significant improvement in quality of life. So we know that prescribed heroin programs work. I say heroin, I'm saying heroin because that's the name that we all think of when we think of that type of drug. But in fact, they don't actually get street heroin from their physician. What they get is something like Dilaudid, which is the pharmaceutical equivalent of heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some things we can do, our listeners out here can do, if we, uh, if we don't agree with the drug war and we would like to send a message that we don't agree with the drug war? One of the first and best things you can do is to become a member of Drug Policy Alliance at drugpolicy.org. You can learn much more about our incredible organization, the incredible research base that supports all of the work that we do, and you can get involved with us at the state level, at the federal level. We do a number of different things. So that's one way that folks can get involved in advocating for change is to learn more about Drug Policy Alliance and become a part of this large, national, global, in fact, movement of drug policy reformers. Uh, that's one way that you can get involved. But, of course, it can be even small changes. I mean, for example, uh, maybe one of your listeners is, is someone that we might think of as a soccer mom who lives in the suburbs and really objects 
to the fear-based drug education that her child is receiving in school. She can be part of the drug policy reform movement by going to her local PTA or requesting a meeting with her school administrators or the school board advocating for more fact-based drug education that gives kids a strong knowledge base upon which they can base their decisions to use or not use drugs instead of just scaring kids into thinking that all drugs will kill you. So there are so many places on that continuum that people can get involved. It's simple things like having a simple conversation with a school board member, um, simple things like learning about naloxone, a drug that saves lives when people are overdosing, uh, and having it in the house if your spouse or loved one uses pain relievers uh, like OxyContin, for example. Uh, So there are a number of ways that people can get involved. I think the best way that people can get involved is just learn more about the drug policy reform movement because, of course, it encompasses a huge variety of things, ranging from legalizing marijuana to uh, prescribed heroin access for heroin-addicted people to helping to address the overdose crisis to uh, eliminating mandatory minimum sentences that are so racially unjust. So learn more about us first and then maybe find the area that really interests you and you can get plugged into that. Well, I know your site has a wealth of information for people that want to go there to learn more about these issues. Um, tell me a little bit about your specialization. You're the Harm Reduction Coordinator for Southern California. Right. So harm reduction has been around in the U.S. for 20 or 30 years or so, and it really started as a really grassroots, direct response to the burgeoning HIV AIDS epidemic that was really impacting the East Coast and West Coast uh, in the mid-'80s. And so what happened as a result of all of the HIV that was being transmitted by uh, people who were sharing syringes, drug users themselves uh, took control of their own medical and biological destiny and began advocating for access to sterile syringes so that they wouldn't be forced to reuse syringes that might have been exposed to the HIV virus. So harm reduction really, as a movement, sprung from a public health-focused core identity that was determined by the drug users themselves. Today, decades later, harm reduction has really grown into a very vibrant, very rich movement that advocates not just for access to things like sterile syringes to reduce HIV and hepatitis C infections, but now has expanded to include things like advocating for naloxone, the antidote to heroin and uh, opioid overdose, to advocating for things like making sure that people who use drugs are at the meetings and at the tables and at the political places where decisions that affect their lives are being made. It's essentially a movement that empowers drug users to take control of their own medical and biological Uh, destinies, to make choices that empower them, that keep them safe, and it really is also designed to educate the greater world at large that people who use drugs are no different from you or I, and in fact, in many cases, are you and I, uh, because many of us use a different variety of drugs. Uh, So harm reduction, that is the work that I do. So I do policy work and advocacy work related to helping to reduce the harms associated not just with drug use, but also with drug prohibition. Tell me a little bit about naloxone. You said this is a heroin antidote. Is this an addictive drug? So naloxone, some of your uh, listeners might know it better uh, by its branded name, and it's sometimes called Narcan. So naloxone is a generic drug. It's been used in... I think probably every emergency room and ambulance in the United States for about 40 years as our first line of defense when we're presented with uh, an opiate overdose. It is non-narcotic. It's extremely affordable. It's about a dollar a dose. It's non-abusable. It has no psychoactive properties whatsoever. 
this is the drug that you would get if you were overdosing and brought to the emergency room. This is the drug that they would administer to you to reverse your overdose and save your life. Because it has such an incredible safety and efficacy profile and such a long track record of success in the United States, more and more communities and physicians are starting to get naloxone out into the hands of lay people as a response to what can only be described as an absolutely mind-boggling, skyrocketing epidemic of overdose fatalities in our country. So naloxone is really one of the hottest issues right now in the harm reduction community. What are some of the uh, other harm reduction activities that you're involved in? So in addition to doing state and federal level work on policy, uh, actually, let me first tell you about the policy work that I do, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about some of the advocacy things that I'm involved with. I'm not sure how much your listeners might know about policy that's sort of colloquially referred to as 911 Good Samaritan. Uh, Just a minute ago, I referred to the huge growing overdose epidemic in the U.S., uh, which is really shocking, and I I really urge your listeners to, to learn more about it. Uh, As recently as just a couple of years ago, the CDC recorded the highest number of accidental drug overdose fatalities in history. We are at enormously high numbers of drug overdoses, largely now attributed to prescription drugs like oxycodone, like hydrocodone, that would be oxycontin, Vicodin, et cetera. So we have an enormous problem. In 16 states right now, more people die from a, from a drug overdose than from a car crash. More people in the U.S. now die from a drug overdose than from HIV AIDS. For people between the ages of 35 and 54 in the United States, drug overdose is the number one cause of injury-related death. I mean, it's, it's a very significant problem. So a lot of states across the country are starting to take a practical look at that and say what policy changes can we implement that will try and help us get that number down. So some states are doing what they call 911 Good Samaritan laws, and I work on some of those issues, which makes it safe for people who are in possession of small amounts of drugs at the scene of a drug overdose to call 911 and get an ambulance there to try to save someone's life. And you may not even be aware of this, but people don't call or they are so afraid to call for help because they know that they're going to wind up getting arrested and probably going to jail if they call 911 and try to get help for someone. So many states right now are taking a look at these policies that say, all right, in this one life or death situation, if you are in possession of a small amount of drugs or, or drug paraphernalia, but you call 911 to try to save the life of a human being, we won't arrest you for that small amount of drugs. It's a really pragmatic approach to the problem, and I'm really excited that uh, New York recently passed that law. They're the, next, they're the most recent state to pass that law. Uh, New Mexico has that law, Washington has it, Connecticut has it, Maryland has a form of it. So a number of states are passing these laws. So I work on that kind of policy. Um, And I also work on advocacy. I do things like this. I go out into the public and try and educate them about why a harm reduction approach to drug use is a more realistic, science-based, evidence-based way of helping people who use drugs for whatever reason stay safe, avoid disease, and avoid death. Okay. I was looking on the website right before the show on your bio there, and it said something about the distributing first aid kits. That is something I did before I got to DPA. Uh, it's something I continue to do in my spare time. Like many of us in the drug policy reform movement, and particularly the harm reduction movement, we're really concerned with marginalized 
populations that don't have ready access to the things that might keep them safe and well and healthy. So one of the things that I did before I came to DPA that I continue to do as a sideline is to assemble and distribute first aid kits to homeless populations throughout Los Angeles. Okay, that sounds very helpful. Um, what are, are there any other activities that you're involved in or that you'd like to talk about? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I can let people know about, uh, my particular area of focus and great passion, not just professionally on the clock for my great organization, Drug Policy Alliance, but even personally, my really great passion in life is to try and raise awareness about the overdose issue. Many people may not realize that they are at risk. People have no idea how to tell the difference between someone passed out at a party and someone who might actually be overdosing and dying. We don't teach people any of that information. Uh, so overdose awareness and prevention is a huge passion of mine. August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. It's the day when all of the people like me, like you, who care about this issue, uh, sort of unite in common purpose for one day to help people learn more about the crisis and all the different ways we can uh, reduce it. Last year, I spearheaded, along with colleagues around the world, a Twitter campaign, and we raised a lot of awareness. It generated hundreds of tweets from all around the world, people sharing information about overdose we're doing that again this year on August 31st. So if you have listeners who would like to learn more, they're not sure what drug policy reform is, they don't really know that much about overdose, but they would like to see what other people are doing to address it, a really simple way to do that is this August 31st, which is a Wednesday. You can go to Twitter, and you can do a keyword search for pound OD11, so OD11, and it will show you all the different tweets coming in from around the world to raise awareness that people who use drugs can sometimes be at risk of overdose, how to reduce those risks, and how to be more compassionate and sensitive and kind to people who choose to use drugs for whatever reason. So overdose is a really big thing that I care a lot about. Oh, and I also just recently wrote uh, an op-ed about the death of Amy Winehouse with my Drug Policy Alliance colleague, Tony Newman, which is up on Huffington Post. So if any of your listeners um, had a really uh, strong reaction to the death of Amy Winehouse, they can certainly go read our perspective on the death of Amy Winehouse on Huffington Post. Uh, I was just hearing some more things about that. Um, is that. Was the cause of death alcohol withdrawal? Is that what they came to the conclusion? You know, it's interesting. That... Uh, I did hear that discussed after her death. We know that the autopsy, which was performed, was inconclusive and that they are still waiting for the toxicology screen results to come back. Uh, frankly, my gut feeling, and I'm sure most everyone's gut feeling, is that it was probably an accidental overdose. Um, it's possible to die from alcohol withdrawal, but generally that doesn't happen days and days and days after you stop using alcohol. It's usually uh, something that happens more quickly. It's unlikely that alcohol withdrawal will be determined to be the cause of her death, and uh, sadly, much more likely that it will uh, ultimately be determined to be an accidental drug overdose. Okay. Do you do anything with uh, ecstasy? Uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, club drugs, those, what we refer to as club drugs like ecstasy and ketamine and GDH and the others, it's one of those areas of drug policy that doesn't get a great deal of attention, like the psychedelics, for example, LSD and others, psilocybin. We don't give a lot of attention to those drugs because the harms associated with them tend to not be as great as some of the harms associated with other drugs. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance certainly has a great interest in not just helping to minimize the harms associated with uh, the prohibition of drugs like ecstasy and the others, but also in really helping researchers to figure out what the benefits of some of those 
drugs are. Uh, we know, in fact, that there's fantastically interesting research happening right now with ecstasy, specifically with veterans, and examining the role that ecstasy, MDMA, can have in uh, addressing post-traumatic stress disorder in our returning veterans and people coping with significant traumatic events. So we're not just interested in reducing harms associated with drugs, but we're also interested in figuring out if there are any benefits associated with certain drugs. We want to support people who can figure out how to maximize the good that can come out of drugs. Yeah, it's fascinating. I hadn't heard anything about that. Well, our time is up on our first segment now. So, Megan, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Kenneth, thank you very much. Okay, we're going to try and call out now to David Burns. Right on time. Hello, David. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Excellent. Uh, let me give a little introduction for the listeners out there. Uh, David Burns, MD, is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 2 million copies, I believe. It's uh, Five now. Five million now? Yep. It's really good. I think it's one of the best self-help books out there, and that's why it's selling so well. I recommend it very highly. It's a great introduction to cognitive behavioral therapy for the layman and, you know, we tell our people, you know, if you have problems with depression, panic, anxiety, various things like this, this is an excellent book. Um, well, I'm going to start right in and ask you a little bit about bibliotherapy, reading books. Can reading books without going to a therapist be beneficial? Oh, thank you so much for the interview. It's really great to uh, to have a chance to talk to you. I appreciate it. Uh, there is good evidence for that uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, a researcher at University of Alabama did an interesting experiment where he took uh, people seeking treatment for uh, major depressive episodes, in other words, a serious uh, depression at the university, and told them that they had to go on a waiting list for four weeks before seeing their psychiatrist. And then he gave half of them a copy of my book, Feeling Good, and half of them were just placed on a waiting list. And then they studied their depression level every week for four weeks. And uh, they wanted to see, you know, could a self-help book actually help help anyone? It was the first time, this, as far as I know, that this type of research was ever done with depression. And they were surprised that at the end of four weeks, the people who they gave a copy of Feeling Good to about, 69% of them, roughly two-thirds of them, had improved so much or recovered that they no longer needed treatment. Then they, the people on the waiting list uh, did not improve, so then they told that group, now you have to wait another four weeks, uh, and in the meantime, we want you to read this book. And then they gave them a copy of Feeling Good, and in the next four weeks, two-thirds of them also recovered and didn't need treatment. And they've done a lot of studies like this. They've done long-term uh, follow-up studies on these people, too. The results are uh, surprisingly uh, positive, almost uh, amazingly so. But by the same token, you know, a third of people uh, do, do not recover just, just by reading a, a, a mm -hmm. self-help book. And, and so, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, you know, so, some people will need the face-to-face -face, uh, treatment. And then one last thing. They, they decided that not any book would do because they it has to be a book that has information that will really guide you out of depression because they did a study with uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, mm -hmm. in a, in a follow-up study, that, putting that head-to-head -head against feeling good. And, and again, the feeling good caused the same two-thirds of the people to, to recover without any treatment, without any drugs. But the Viktor Frankl book did not lead to any uh, improvement in, in depression. Now, for people that choose to enter treatment, can reading a self-help book like Feeling Good be a useful adjunct to treatment? Well, that's how I meant it when I when I wrote the book originally. I was just starting my clinical practice. I was still in Philadelphia at the time, and and I thought, you know, I I tell patients certain things every session, and then I individualize the the therapy. And wouldn't it be nice to take all the things and put them in a book so. 
they could read all the information between sessions and then we could use the time in sessions just to focus on their unique uh, problem whatever whatever it is and that was how i had intended the book originally when i first uh, wrote it i never intended it to be an actual treatment for depression uh, but uh, uh, apparently uh, for some people it can actually cause the depression to disappear and i've had i've probably had more than 30,000 letters and emails from people who have read it, uh, the book, and, re- and improved or recovered. And some of them tell amazing stories of having had electroconvulsive therapy and antidepressant drugs for for years or decades and having no improvement and then picking up a copy of Feeling Good and, and recovering in just a, a few weeks. So, you know, it, it definitely can happen and does lead to new uh, ideas and ways of thinking about how we might want to be treating uh, depression in the future, ways that might be radically different from uh, conventional uh, treatment up to this point. Well, I can offer a testimony myself. Um, I had had depression for a long period of time, and then I started learning about cognitive behavioral therapy, and I learned bits and pieces, various places, something from a counselor, something from this book, uh, something from feeling good too, which I had checked out of the library, and as I started putting the pieces together, it started working, and I started getting over it. Uh, Your book was actually the last one I encountered, so, you know, but I just bought a copy. I'm rereading it right now, and I'm just amazed at what a good, well-put-together book it is. That's great. I was taking a look at the book uh, that you sent me, How How to Change Your Drinking, Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And I was pleased to see that you know a lot of that goes back to work we were doing in the in the 1970s. Like cost benefit analysis was actually a technique I developed, uh, and and the four compartment decision making form and things like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the techniques we're using now in depression involve uh, focus also on resistance and motivation, and letting the patient set the agenda. Uh, similar, quite different, but uh, compatible. With uh, with this uh, the book that, that that you sent me on uh, on alcohol, and the idea is that the therapist, whether it's a psychiatrist, psychologist, or whoever, is working with the patient on, on the patient's goals r- rather than imposing some authoritarian idea of how the patient should uh, you know run their life or, or how they should be, and and this has led to uh, even in the past ten years dramatic. Uh, and amazing further improvements in the speed of recovery from depression and anxiety disorders, uh, as well, of course, as as being important in in all of the addictions. Thank you for the compliment on the book. I want you to tell our audience, uh, some people might not be familiar with this, how does cognitive behavioral therapy differ from uh, other forms like Freudian, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, yeah, well, it's it's just it's just radically radically uh, different. The uh, popular idea about psychotherapy that you see in movies like Goodwill Hunting and uh, Ordinary People and on and on is you just go and you kind of talk to a wise therapist who asks questions and says, "Tell me more," and and that this process unfolds over a long time of weeks, months, uh, off years, and sometimes you know more than a decade. And and that uh, the result of that, some insight is supposed to occur, or some growth is supposed to occur. What we're doing is using very high-powered active techniques. We're now attempting to get uh, recovery, if we can, in a single therapy session. It has to be an extended to two-hour session generally, but we're we're trying to see all of the symptoms disappear the first time we meet with with somebody, and and we we. We, we 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 do a lot during that session. You, you first you've got to create tremendous warmth and trust and and empathy, so the person feels really cared about and that you can see the world through their eyes. And then and and with a lot of acceptance and compassion. And that won't cure somebody, but it, it it's it's definitely a, a, a part of it. And then we 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 go into to the issue of resistance and and all the reasons sometimes to be depressed if you're depressed and what it shows about you that's really very fine very honorable in a way uh, like a lot of times we view depression as an illness and of course it's a horrible form of suffering but it also shows something about the person that's really kind of kind of wonderful in a way and kind of tremendous and paradoxically when you show the person all the reasons you know not to let go of their depression they they sometimes 
then suddenly want to let, let, let go of it. And then we jump in with powerful techniques to have them identify these distorted thoughts like I'm no good, I'm, I'm a loser, I'm a bad mother, uh, I should be smarter than I am, I should be more successful than I am, I shouldn't have screwed up, I'm, you know, all of those thoughts and identify the distortions in them like all or nothing thinking and self-blame and emotional reasoning and uh, you know mental filtering and all of these uh, distortions and then use powerful techniques to blast those thoughts out of the water like externalization of voices and the paradoxical double standard and the downward arrow technique and you know a lot of very dynamic techniques that involve role play with with the therapist and and then we measure at the beginning and end of the session exactly how depressed the person is or how anxious how angry at the start of the session and at the end of the session and in many cases now we're we're seeing all all the symptoms complete recovery essentially in one session although you know we can't always do that of course some people are going to be very difficult but we're we're seeing it with the majority of people now and it's 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 been an amazing uh, kind of evolution or in 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 the way we think about and deliver men- mental health care and then after that you've got to do relapse prevention too because everyone's going to relapse following recovery i i define a relapse as just one minute or more of feeling crappy and and from that definition we 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 all relapse forever we all kind of drift in and out of enlightenment and so we give the person tools like when you fall into that black hole again here's the technique that worked for you and this technique will always work for you for for the rest of your life so that's just kind of a real real brief overview but it has no similarity whatsoever to psychodynamic therapy psychoanalytic therapy all the conventional forms of therapy except perhaps the one common overlap would be the importance of compassion and listening and and kind of seeing the world through through the other person's eyes because that's we all need that when we're suffering well i see your book has a lot of exercises in it can people do these exercises in their head or should they write them down yeah you got to do it on paper that it's a big mistake uh, to think you can do it in your head when you're depressed there it it all the thoughts that cause depression are distorted. Reality could never cause depression. Even a bad event like dying of cancer would never make a person depressed. Depressed is always a, a distorted perception of what's going on. Like I was treating a woman, asked to see a woman in the hospital who was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. She had three years to live. And But I asked her, what thoughts are going through your mind when you're depressed? And And, and she said, oh, my family can't exist without me. It's my fault. I got ovarian cancer. I'm letting my family down. Well, those thoughts are not valid. Thoughts are not realistic. They're just self-blaming and jumping to conclusions. And when she talked back to those thoughts, the depression went away. It took just a single visit with, with her at the bedside in, 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 in the hospital. But uh, we wrote those thoughts down, and, and, and the problem is that if you don't, once you write them down, I have a little checklist of, of cognitive distortions that, with definitions, you can see, oh, that's all or nothing thinking, and this is self-blame, and it's a sh- hidden should statement, it's emotional reasoning, and then you can kind of see ways to talk back to that thought. But when, if you don't write it down, you get fooled. Depression is the world's oldest con and most convincing con, and you will be so convinced that you're worthless hopeless human being and you have little or no chance of destroying those horrible thoughts unless you write them down on a piece of paper well tell me a little bit more about these cognitive distortions i think you have a list of 10 of them in the book oh yeah yeah and 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 all depression and anxiety and a whole lot of anger as well result from them and by the way uh the the latest development although it's been around for 30 years, but I haven't published it or promoted it, is that addictions result from positive distortions that are the mirror images of the negative distortions. But I'll focus on the negative versions of them for the moment. Like all or nothing thinking is black and white thinking. It's like if you're not a complete success, uh, you you tell yourself you're you're a total a total failure. And uh, and it just it just it feels so real. Shades of gray don't don't exist in the minds of a lot of people who who are depressed. Uh, 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 overgeneralization is another common one. Uh, everybody does this to a certain extent. You take a negative event and you see it as a never-ending pattern of defeat. For for, for example. Most of us have been rejected by someone that we love, particularly in growing up, uh, uh, but, but all throughout our lives. 
uh, we all get slammed and kicked in the stomach and, you know, hurt and disapproved of and rejected by people from time to time. But often when you're rejected romantically, you'll tell yourself, I'm unlovable. I'll be alone forever. This is always happening to me. I'll never find a woman who who loves me. And that's a classic overgeneralization because you're taking a specific negative event, getting rejected by someone, and rather than thinking about it in a specific way as to, you know, why really you got rejected, and there can be lots of reasons, uh, and, and you can learn from, from, from it in, in all cases. But instead of doing that, you're saying, I'm, a, I'm a, a worthless human being. There's no such thing as a worthless human being. You're just generalizing to your whole self from this, from this one event. And you're generalizing to the future. You know, I'll always be alone. I'll always be rejected. That, that type of thing. Uh, uh, all or nothing thinking, I mentioned a minute ago, is like, let's say you have public speaking anxiety. That's that's one of you know many forms of anxiety I've struggled with in my life and and, and defeated. But 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 you tell yourself, uh, oh, when I get up in front of the audience, uh, my, my my voice will tremble, I'll shake, I'll forget my my talk, and my mind will go blank. I'll make a total fool of myself. My reputation will be ruined. Everyone will look down on me. Well, that's kind of uh, all or nothing thinking. You you know, looking at it at a total total black and white uh, you know type of situation but it's so painful when you do that because it feels so real to feel i really am a loser i really am hopeless and uh, you know it's one of the worst forms of suffering there's emotional reasoning uh, is one i feel like a loser so i must be one i feel hopeless so it must be a fact that i'll never get better Hidden should statements or should statements. We do this to ourselves all the time. I shouldn't have screwed up. Uh, you look back. Uh, you, you know, I, I can think of a time I, uh, I used to collect. Uh, you know, kind of for fun and investment world paper money. Uh, uh, it was kind of an oddball thing to to collect, but it's always appealed to me. And I can remember years ago. A uh, fellow came to me and said, oh, we've got this wonderful group of Chinese notes that we're going to try to buy, and, and uh, would you like to, to uh, you know, buy into this deal? You can have a third of them. It'll cost you about $3,000. And at the time I was a resident, I was short. I didn't have $3,000, so I passed on it. Uh, well, since that time, Chinese banknotes have, have exploded in value, and that group, if I had bought it, would be worth over a million dollars now. So you can look back on that and, and say, oh, I shouldn't have screwed up. I shouldn't have made that mistake. I'm such a stupid loser, you know. And we do this. Uh, we beat up on ourselves. Or we, we direct should statements toward other people. You shouldn't have said that to me. You shouldn't be like that. Uh, it's our, our problems in our relationship are all your fault. That, that's another, another huge uh, distortion, uh, you know, self-blame and, and, and other blame. Uh, uh, fortune telling is the cause of all anxiety, making uh, unwarranted uh, negative predictions like when I get on that plane, oh, I just know it's going to crash. Mm-hmm. You know, you, well, there's a small chance a plane uh, would, would crash. It's about like one in a billion, but the person with the fear of flying, they, they've inflated that through magnification, another distortion to think, oh, it's like, like one in three. They think it really is dangerous, uh, uh, you know, flying, and, and uh, they make these negative predictions. Uh, uh, you know, the people who have panic attacks, they make fortune telling. You know, they say, oh, I'm, I'm about to go crazy. I'm about to have a heart attack. And then they get, you know, terrified uh, because of that uh, irrational thought. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, the two ideas of cognitive therapy or the three ideas is that only your thoughts could upset you. That's radical, but that's been around for 2,000 years since the ancient Greek philosopher Epictetus and others have known that. But the second thing, which is kind of new, is that most of our suffering results not only from thoughts, but distorted thoughts, wrong thoughts. You know, when you're panicky, when you're anxious, when you're angry, when you're depressed, you're telling yourself something that's not true. You're fooling yourself. And, of course, the third thing that's been, you know, big in the last 40 years is the practical thing when you change the way you think you can change the way you feel and we are we're just every week in my uh, research groups at Stanford psychotherapy development groups we're uh, we're speeding up and refining the techniques we we now view uh, psychotherapy kind of like a computer chip that evolves you know actually on a weekly basis really uh, always coming up with new techniques new new insights it's very dynamic and changing and evolving rap- rapidly, which is another perhaps change from some of the conventional therapies where 
they, 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 they pretty much, from what I can gather, just stay the same, uh, you know, pretty much. I, I don't mean to be too critical of colleagues because there's probably some very fine psychodynamic therapists and psychoanalytic therapists, but our, our approach is, is, is just radically different. I think there are good uh, psychodyn- there are good psychodynamic therapists, but you can't really do that with a self-help book very easily. No. And that's one of the great things about the Feeling Good book is that, you know, yeah, I say to people, you know, if you want to work on your problem with depression and panic anxiety, first try the book. And yeah. if you need more help, then try a therapist. If you need more help, then try medication. Yeah. Yeah, the, all the new research on the medications is pretty dismal, too. Yeah, we I don't know. Have that. you looked at that book by Irving Kirsch, The Emperor's New Drugs? Um, no, but about two weeks ago we had Bob Whitaker, Anatomy of an Epidemic, as a guest here. Oh, yeah, well, he's into that. Yeah, he's terrific. Didn't he write, uh, write uh, Mad in America? Yes, that one. He wrote that one, too. Oh, yeah, he's he, he's good. Yeah, he did a kind of expose on the neuroleptics. And uh, uh, Irving Kirsch, uh, uh, was at University of Connecticut, now he's in, in uh, England, has written a, a very piercing criticism of the uh, antidepressant uh, drugs uh, and whether they're really, uh, whether we've been kind of over, oversold on, that, on them and uh, on their benefits and as well as their, 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 their safety. So I think it's, it's great that we have new drug-free treatments for depression that, uh, that can be so, effect- so effective for, for, for many people. I started out as a full-time psychopharmacologist, so I've never been against uh, med- medications, but uh, I, I'm looking for medications that, 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 that really work as advertised, and uh, some of the drugs just uh, have, have very few real effects above and beyond their placebo effects. Yeah, Quaker's new book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, also does all the antidepressant material as well as the antipsychotics. So we had a pretty good uh, session with him. And you know, was I he great to talk to? He was very good to talk to. Yeah. And I urge people to be cautious when they uh, uh, decide to take a medication. You know, don't just immediately say, uh, "There's a magic pill there that's going to fix me." You know, there there are other things. I think you know. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a place to go to first before you start going looking for that magic pill that might not be there. Yep, right, right you are. Yeah. We got a little pause here. We're trying to think of something to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you've asked great questions. I was talking too much. I decided to let you, you know, ask some more questions, sir. I had a question right in my head, and it just jumped out because we got off the track here. Oh, uh, Epictetus, Epictetus. I, I love that book, the the handbook, which is even it's rather short. It's just about fifty-two paragraphs, I think. Oh, is that right? Yeah. It's well, people short. are disturbed not by things, but by the views they take of them. That that was his his main thing, and uh, I mean that that has really. Uh, you know, made a tremendous impact through the through the centuries, and in in this uh, recent decades, it's just been turned into a, a you know mind blowing new form of uh, psychotherapy. But uh, one of his colleagues, Marcus Aurelius, had a book too called Meditations, and there was a quote in there that I have used tremendously. Well, it turned into kind of an art form too in dealing with conflict with people. I think his quote was, uh, "If someone criticizes you." tell them that if they only knew you better, they'd find a whole lot more than just that to criticize. <laughs> and it's such a fantastic thing, and I call that the disarming technique, and uh, that's a wonderful uh, technique when you're in conflict with someone, rather than getting defensive, to see the truth in what they're saying, and it can transform relationships, but it's it's very hard to do it because our pride gets in the way, and... Uh, uh, we we uh, feel that we have to defend ourselves, and then then the problem escalates. We have uh, several times in our online email groups, we've read through the handbook of Epictetus together. You know, me no posting, kidding. Yeah, me posting a paragraph at a time because it's a very short book. It's like twenty pages or something. Oh. Very well, short good. is good. My feeling good isn't is short. That's what's, that's one problem with it. You know, the Marcus Aurelius he wrote a book called Meditations that I mentioned, and it went onto the bestseller list in London about four years ago. Well, that's interesting. The top ten, and it took it two thousand years to reach the bestseller list. 
Well, the thing with the handbook, the paragraphs are very, very pithy. So it's like it's really good to read one a day and then think about it for the day to kind of absorb it because you just don't want to sit down and read the whole book at once. Or just It's complete overload. Yeah, interesting. But I love that. And, you know, and I recognize that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, so strongly based in that. And I think they, they go together so well. And, you know, it helps people. So many people that have problems with substance use, they have an underlying depression or an anxiety or panic or social phobia or something that they need to deal with. And I think that the cognitive behavioral therapy and the Feeling Good book just helps them so much to deal with these issues. And then it makes it easier to deal with these substance use issues. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So what are you up to these days, Dr. Burns? Well, uh, there's a lot of exciting things going on. I'm 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 getting turning into an old fart. I'm going to be 69 uh in September, but I feel like I'm about 16 because there's so much exciting new stuff going on all the time. I I'm on the voluntary faculty at the Stanford Medical School, which means I'm I'm slave labor, but I put in about 700 hours of uh teaching there. And uh, we, we've developed kind of psychotherapy uh, training uh, uh, program there. I, I, I have uh, evening groups, like I have a Tuesday group. It's two and a half hours long, and anyone can attend. It's, it's for therapists as well as psychiatric residents and, and doctoral students in psychology. And we uh, do we, we cr- create new treatment methods and new training methods and. Uh, I start out with just a few uh, students, and uh, now it's mushroomed, and we have six, actually, evening groups now in the Bay Area, uh, three at Stanford, one in Sa- San Francisco, one in, in uh, Berkeley, and one in uh, Sacramento, and a fairly strong attendance in all of those. And uh, uh, we one of the things that we do is we train people by treating them. In other words, uh, uh, the, the, the psychiatric residents and the students and the community therapists who come are just as wounded and fragile as the people they treat, but they they generally uh, are practicing kind of alone and hiding their true selves. And so this is a place where they can uh, come and open up, and uh, uh, we, we we break into little small groups of four or five uh, in each group, and, and someone is the designated patient. And then we treat them over the two and a half hours and try to bring them from you know severe suffering to just laughter and enlightenment to complete the whole process at one at one sitting and it's a it's it's just a wonderful thing i just have tremendous colleagues brilliant young people to work with uh, matthew may uh is a young psychiatrist i think he's he's probably one of the finest therapists in the country perhaps the the, the greatest in the in the country and uh but many many uh, on that level uh, mickey trockel or cats J- jacob towery jill levitt uh, uh, angela crumb Lee Harrington, just brilliant young young people, and and with great morale, and uh, it's just a joyous activity. And I'm doing a lot of writing and and, and teaching and, and training, and 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 what we we've been developing is is called paradoxical agenda setting, which is a new way of understanding therapeutic resistance, why why people get stuck in depression or anxiety or marital problems or addictions, and then how to melt away that resistance but before you start using any of the 50 to 100 techniques that we use to actually uh treat depression or panic attacks or whatever. And it it has just it's it seems like a mind-blowing uh evolution that integrates all the motivational things with all of the cognitive things and it's and uh, and then I'm also developing videos there's a website called teamtherapytraining.com where some of them that's teamtherapytraining.com teamtherapytraining is all one word if anyone mm-hmm. wants to go and look and and a lot of the people in the groups have volunteered to sit down in front of uh, professional uh, high definition cameras while we treated them to to illustrate how these amazing new techniques work, and uh, I, I didn't think it was possible that I didn't think they would be willing to do that to to bare their souls, uh, but uh, they they did it, and uh, it's magic. 
I always said if I could get this on on television, get this film, we could we could change the world. But I always assumed it would never be possible because it's too personal uh, for people to you know sh- display their their broken spirit, the broken part of themselves. But they did it, and they're just amazing. That that's been kind of a a, 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 a huge. Uh, shock to my system and, and a pleasant one. I'm so proud. One is a, a, a colleague, Brack, who who is a Marine. Now he's a psychologist, and uh, he volunteered and gets in front of the camera and starts sobbing and reveals a, a war incident in the first Gulf War that he's been hiding in shame for over 20 years. And uh, and and then we work that through, and by the end he's he's just laughing and totally free. And you know, it's when I talk about it in workshops, I start crying. I'm so inspired by Brack and his amazing courage. And another Melanie, uh, uh, a woman in our group, gets on camera and, and, and reveals something she's been hiding in shame for t- for 10 years and feels like she's not as good as she should be. And then we take her all the way through to, to really what I think you would call enlightenment as much as uh, you call total recovery or enlightenment. And one of the things I really love is how at the deepest level, when people recover, it almost becomes more of a spiritual experience, and uh, not in the sense of a religion, uh, but I, I don't care if you're Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist or Islamic or Christian or whatever you are, there's a profound spiritual underpinning to to all of these religions, and, and you know there, there's a radical acceptance of your broken nature, and when you accept your broken nature, something uh, magical ha- happens, and you can actually see it on, on video. I think... This is the first time the process of enlightenment, human enlightenment, has ever been captured before on, on video. And I, I would say that what happens on those videos is, is actual enlightenment, what, what Buddha spoke, spoke about. Well, I'm definitely going to check out that website and look at those videos. It's time for us to close now, so thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. David Burns. Well, I'm really honored and uh, can't, can't thank, thank you enough. It's uh, you know, been a pleasure. Okay, and uh, next week our guests will be Scott Miller, who will talk about client-directed outcome-informed therapy, and Kristen Neff, who will talk about self-compassion. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 